Welcome, welcome to the good old days of radio show. This is John Tefteller, your host. It's Tuesday, and normally that means you hear some very light-hearted comedy or kind of fantasy drama or something like that, but... Today is going to sound more like Thursday than Tuesday because we have an episode of Escape that delves into uh, werewolves and crazy things. <laughs> so it should be on Thursday, but because we have our special guest back with us again, the man of a thousand voices from the land down under, Mr. Keith Scott, uh, a, a longtime radio, old-time radio collector and researcher. Uh, Keith has done extensive research on identifying cast members of these radio programs. If you've listened to any number of radio programs from the, the 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, very very few cast members are given credit on the program. And so when we hear these voices, some of us can pick out some of them and say, oh, that's uh, Bill Conrad or that's Paul Fries or whoever it is, because we know their voices. But uh, they're not credited in most cases at the end of the programs. And Keith has spent decades uh, looking at old scripts in, in, in libraries and archives to try to figure out who is the voice of this particular character on this particular show. And he's done a magnificent job doing that. He has a book called The Cartoon Voices of the Golden Age, 1935 to 1970. And he goes into documenting a lot of this research. And welcome back to the good old days of radio show, Mr. Keith Scott. Thank you, John. It's uh, great to be here. And yes, we were thinking that um, we'd had some quite uh, light-hearted episodes on this uh, series of uh, cartoon-related radio actors, you know, like the, the Mickey Mouse and Snow White and uh, Mel Blanc doing crazy stuff. And this is an example coming up of uh, two very fine cartoon actors who were really uh, full-time radio performers uh, in its in its great days. And that is uh, the... I think they're almost well known enough by people in the radio collecting fraternity that uh, even if they're not known by the general public, compared to some of the more anonymous uh, radio actors, and that is the great Paul Freese, who, of course, uh, for anyone who's ever visited Disneyland, is the voice of the Haunted Mansion, and uh, on the crazy Jay Ward, Rocky and Bullwinkle series, he was uh, the master villain, the spy from Potsylvania, Boris Badenov. Boris and, Badenov, um, yes. Yes. Yes, his idiot Musin squirrel killed his leader. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that voice. But uh, he also, um, in the series of Escape, which is this great uh, anthology of high adventure and, and uh, thrills, he was often the opening voice uh, that uh, brought you in. They used to call them on shows like The Whistler and Suspense, which had The Man in Black and Escape. They called them the signature voice of that show. And uh, it was either Paul Fries or his uh, his great buddy William Conrad, who uh, also appeared on the Rocky and Bullwinkle show as the uh, narrator of the Rocky and Bullwinkle episode. Uh, uh, either one of them would do this... Um, voice that drew you in right at the beginning of escape with this tired of the everyday grind or, or freeze would say tired of the everyday routine 
and uh, they they just were so um, so the, the type of voices that they possessed, similar to Orson Welles, just drew a, a, an audience in because uh, there was a slight feeling of melodrama and uh, larger than life acting. And uh, it was just uh, the perfect uh, thing to get you into this series called Escape, which was, I think it was conceived with the success of the Roma Wines suspense series in the 40s, that the powers that be at CBS, which was Ernie Martin uh, on the West Coast, wanted another show like Suspense as a summer replacement originally. And uh, that then spawned this series that often was spottily uh, scheduled, but... Uh, ended up with 240 great productions. What kind of ratings did Escape have? I know Suspense had tremendous ratings. They had a huge audience. Yes. But by the time Escape came along, it was kind of late in the game for radio. Television was coming in and all that. What type of ratings did Escape have? Do you know? I think it was simply respectable uh, because mostly in its in its early days, starting in 47, it was slotted in uh, as a, first of all, a summer replacement. Then it was picked up because of the excellence of its production for the fall season, 47 to 48. But then after that series ended in uh, September of 48, it went back to a summer status and it was always um, bounced around. And never yeah. had a sponsor. That's yeah, no the main sponsor. Difference. And yeah. that's why I yeah. asked what type of ratings they had, because if they had mm. humongous numbers, you would think a sponsor would have come aboard. Yeah, and, and that's why uh, William Frug, who we mentioned a few weeks ago, did say that the people at KNX, for instance, uh, where it was produced, which KNX was, of course, the CBS outlet on the West Coast in, in the in right in the heart of Hollywood itself, a, a major production center for the best of all time radio. And uh, he said a lot of the board members there re recognized Escape's excellence and were happy to keep it going even on a sustaining basis. Well, that seems to indicate, and again, I haven't seen any uh, ratings anywhere. I'm sure they're available uh, if, if somebody would research them, but it seems to indicate that it had some kind of audience, but nowhere near the numbers that Suspense had. No, no. Suspense, suspense I think, was uh, a feather in the cap of CBS, and, and that's why they always sought a new sponsor if, if one left, such as when Roma Wines decided that uh, they'd done enough advertising uh, up at, at the end of '47. So they were hastily looking for another sponsor, and that's when the long run with Autolight began. And you can you can tell on those Autolight shows, for instance, that there was a big budget. You know, the shows just sound very rich. But the Escape series sound as good as the Suspense show, so it's it's obvious that CBS regarded it as a bit of a labor of love series and, and gave it a good budget. Well, the one, and I don't want to get too negative on escape because i love it just as much as you do and other people do sure. but i have noticed that the musical cues on a lot of them are canned they're not live some that, are yeah that was in the in the later years yeah. yeah yeah now in these in these ones that we're talking about in the early days and the one that we're going to um, to play today the music was uh, was live and excellent uh, right. and it was done by for this first run uh, really from the beginning of the show in July 47 until March of 48. Uh, the music was done by Cy Feuer, and he, he uh, left the radio industry 
soon after doing this because um, you never hear him much mentioned again uh, and went to New York and ended up doing Broadway musicals. And who was his partner? But um, Ernie Martin, uh, the CBS executive who okayed Escape. So uh, they ended up as a, as a big partnership on, on in Broadway in the late 50s, early 60s. Do we need to say anything about ancient sorceries? Uh, I think you mentioned it was written by a famous uh, horror Horror yes, Al- Algernon Blackwood. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he he had a reputation along with H.P. Lovecraft as one of the great horror authors uh, in short stories. Again, but I, I do know H.P. Lovecraft and I know some of his favorite uh, famous stories and all that. I just didn't know this particular writer. Um, but I do love right. this show, Ancient Sorceries, and I don't want to spoil it for people. I just think they should uh, do what we say on Thursday, and that is uh, send your little children out of the room and turn out your lights and sit by yourself and prepare to be amazed. This is uh, What's the date on this one? Uh, this is the 15th of February in 48. Okay, February 15th, 1948. Send the kids out of the room, turn the lights down low, be by yourself, or if you're sitting with someone, you might have to grab their arm. Ancient sorceries. Here we go. Fed up with the shoveling snow? Can't shake that cold of yours? Wonder what the world's coming to? We offer you escape. alone in a remote village on the Welsh border, surrounded by silent townspeople who were watching and waiting for you to decide to lose your soul. Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson and carefully contrived to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight we escape to a remote section of Wales and a strange village between two worlds. As Algernon Blackwood described it in his eerie story, Ancient Sorceries. I had spent a week's vacation in Wales and was returning to London by train when it all began. It was late afternoon. We'd left the Welsh mountains and crossed the border into Western England, passing through a countryside which appeared singularly empty, deserted of life. Over the soft hills and the valleys between hung a faintly perceptible haze, given to the whole landscape a feeling of enchantment and unreality. The train at length slowed down to a stop at a tiny wayside station. As it did so, a sudden thought occurred to me. Hmm. Why not leave the crowded train with its irritating noises and spend the night in this peaceful spot, then take a slower and emptier train in the morning? On the impulse, I rose from my seat and the man sitting opposite to me said, Why say, sir? We only stop here for a minute or two. If you're thinking of walking about a bit... No, uh, as a matter of fact, I'm getting off here. I thought you were going to London. I'll go on in the morning. I'm going to stay here for the night. I strongly advise you not to. Uh, I beg your pardon? This is the village of Malton. Malton? I've never heard of it. 
few people have outside. But if you place any value on your soul, you'll not spend the night here. My dear sir, what are you talking about? Why not? Because of the sleep and because of the cats. That's all I can tell you. You're insane. I'll take my bag if you don't mind. You're making a terrible mistake. You may not even have the chance to regret it. Don't leave this train. I know what I'm talking about. No, but utter nonsense. Don't. Don't, I tell you. Goodbye. <laughs> I stood there on the embankment as the train pulled away. What in the world was the matter with the man anyway? Cats, sleep. His words made no sense. I picked up my bag and started walking up the long hill toward the village. And suddenly, for no reason at all, I shivered. Hello? Hello, is anybody here? Yes. Oh. Oh, I, I didn't see you at first. Is there something I can do for you, sir? Why, yes. I, I saw your sign outside, the Inn of the Golden Bow. I should like to get a room, please. You're planning to stay here? Why, why yes. Oh, I... Very well. You may sign the register. Here. Thank you. I'm going to catch another train and go on in the morning. Oh, yes, of course. There we are. Arthur Llewellyn. Llewellyn? Yes, from London. Arthur Llewellyn. You've been a long time coming back. What? But now that you're here, you'll find there are some things that never change. Madam, I'm afraid I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, you rang, madam? Uh, where did you come from? Dundreary, the gentleman would like a room for the night. His name is Arthur Llewellyn. Aye, so it is. Welcome back to Malton, sir. Huh? Why, I, I knew I'd never been here before. What was it all about? First the man on the train, and now these people. Were they crazy, or was I? I left the inn and walked along narrow cobbled streets, beneath quaint gables leaning out from the silent, shuttered houses, through dappled pools of light and shadow. It gradually dawned upon me that the village of Malton was centuries old, older than any town in England ought to be. And the people, the people I passed now and then, were, were dressed in the fashion of another day. They paid no attention to me. They went silently about their own business. Yes, that was it. That's what I'd been noticing. Silently. They came and went with only... Soft padding sounds to mark their passing, as though they walked in shoes with soles of velvet. When I stopped, there was no sound. The silence was unbroken. I hurried on through the streets and came at last to the far side of the village, to a place where the hill broke away sharply from a low, flat wall of stone, perhaps a rampart once. I sat down upon it, and the dreamy, lazy somnolence of the place stole over me. Presently, I don't know how much later, I became aware of the sound of weird music rising out of the veil below me, 
I looked down from the rampart. The sunken plain at the bottom melted away into a sea of gathering shadow, blurred in a swirl of thickening mist. I thought of dead trees swept by the night wind, of animals with half-human voices singing to a white moon, of the wailings of cats on the roof tiles at night, of unearthly creatures far off in the sky calling to one another in chorus. I felt my heart beat faster and faster, felt the vague stirrings of some urge inside of me, trying to answer the awful call of that music. I fought against the feeling, fought against myself, and even as I did, I found I was staring down into that valley, peering desperately into the darkness, trying to see... I, I don't know what. And then suddenly... The music ended. I stood on the rampart alone, dusk fallen around me, and the early night wind moaned with a chill breath. Quick terror rose up in me. I turned and ran through the darkened streets, ran with my heart pounding, dodging its shadows, through one dim alley after another, and arrived at last panting and almost breathless at the door of the Golden Bar. It's been a long time returning, Mr. Llewellyn. It's past seven. Oh, yes, yes. I, I, I guess I walked farther than I meant to. I didn't realize it was so late. You heard the music, didn't you? Yes. Strangest music I've ever heard. How did you know? Who plays it, anyway? Then you didn't remember it? No. Why should I? The thing was becoming irritating, this quiet insistence that I was someone else. I went into my lonely dinner and ate as quickly as possible. Then, taking the candle Dundreary gave me, I crossed the lobby, climbed the stairs behind the desk, and walked past silent doors down the long, empty hall that led to my room at the end. I was halfway to my door when suddenly the flame of my candle went out. I stood stock still in the pitch blackness, fumbling for a match. At that moment, I knew that someone or something was there with me in the darkness. I held my breath and listened. There was no sound, no movement. I reached out and felt the wall and moved along it, feeling my way in the inky blackness. It was then I touched it. Near my face, another soft, warm, yielding. And alive. Who? What is it? It is I, Ilsa. Who? Ilsa. Don't you remember me, Arthur? No. No. <laughs> but wouldn't you like to remember me? Don't you want to see me again? To look at me? No? I... I don't know. <laughs> but not tonight, Arthur. Perhaps tomorrow. 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 I stumbled blindly through the door of my room and shut it behind me. I lit the candle and flung myself across the bed. The room was small with one shuttered window and the light of the flame flickered on the walls and ceiling. 
I stared at the hand that had touched her out there in the dark hall. I lifted it up to my face and smelled of the barbaric scent that still clung to my fingers. It was evil maddening. The candle sputtered and burned and the melted minutes dripped away. Who was I? Who were these people? Who was Ilsa? I fell asleep finally and dreamed of soft-moving creatures and the silence of life in a dim, muffled world devoid of all feeling but ecstasy. And I dreamed, too, of cats. You slept quite late this morning, Mr. Llewellyn. Huh? Oh, morning, Dundreary. I... I felt as if I'd been drugged. The night air here in Morton is very conducive to sleep. I, I'd meant to catch the morning train for London. Now it's too late. What a terrible shame. Oh, by the way, Dundreary. Yes, Mr. Llewellyn? Uh, do you, uh, I mean, well, I, I was wondering if, if you'd know anyone by the name of uh, Ilsa. Ilsa happens to be my daughter, Mr. Llewellyn. Oh, I, I didn't hear you come in. I hope you were able to sleep well without any unpleasant dreams. I guess so. I... I'm so happy to hear it. Perhaps then you may decide to stay with us for a long time. That's, that's very kind of you. No, it isn't kindness, Mr. Llewellyn. But all of us are hoping that you may decide soon. Decide? Decide what? It was no use. None of them would answer my questions. They seemed to think I should know already. I left the inn as soon as I'd eaten, walked around the streets of the village, and I began to notice that I was never completely alone. If I turned down an empty street, someone always stepped from a doorway or entered from the opposite end. Wherever I went within five minutes, a dozen people were strolling near me. And I realized these people were watching me tensely as a cat watches a mouse or another cat. Quite fortunate you came back early, Mr. Llewellyn. Your dinner this evening is a rather special one. Special? What do you mean by that? You are to have a guest. Huh? Who? <laughs> An old friend. She's coming now. The girl who came toward, toward us across the room was lithe and slim, and she moved with the sinuous grace of a young panther. She was lovely, exotic, and... Terrifyingly beautiful. May I present Mr. Arthur Llewellyn, Miss Ilsa? He's been with us for two days. Yes, I know. My mother told me. May I sit down, Mr. Llewellyn? Hmm? Oh. Oh, yes, please do. Here, permit me. Thank you. You may sit, Andre. Thank you, Miss Ilsa. Then 
your Ilsa. Yes. Don't you remember me, Arthur? From last night. It was you well, last night, wasn't it? Yes. And other nights. Can't you remember all the other nights? No. No. Then we shall have to try that much harder. It's been such a very long time. Please, Ilsa, what is it all of you talk about? I, I don't understand any of it. You will, Arthur. Unless you leave, of course. Weren't you planning to take a train to London in the morning? Yes. It... No. No, I've changed my mind. <laughs> I'm glad you did. We'll try to make you happy here, my mother and I. And then perhaps you'll stay a long, long time. No. I must leave for sure in a day or two. Suppose we wait and see. And meanwhile, if there's anything you want, all you have to do is ask me. All right. Why don't you tell me ab about... Yes, Arthur. About what? No. No, I don't want to know. I, I don't want you to tell me. Suddenly I realized I was afraid to know. Afraid. I should leave now, but I couldn't leave. It was Ilsa. She attracted, repelled, fascinated and, and horrified me. All in single flashes of blasting emotion. I felt the presence of a great grey curtain ready to roll back at any moment and leave me on the brink of an awful adventure. I knew the village held its breath, watched and waited. And then on the evening of the fifth day, the whole ghastly secret exploded into hideous life. After dinner, Ilsa had asked me to walk with her. It was the first time I'd been outside the inn after dark. We walked through the village in the moonlight, saying little, and came finally to the stone rampart above the sunken plain. We were quite alone. Look, Arthur. Hmm? It's a full moon tonight. Do you know what that means? Yes. It means I can see more clearly how beautiful you are. Do you really believe that? Do you think I'm beautiful? Like a soft, sleek leopard in a warm jungle of shadows. But wait, I'll, I'll see you even better in a moment. Arthur, what are you doing? These dry leaves by the wall, they'll make an excellent bonfire. There, there, you see? No. No. What's wrong? The fire. No, Arthur, put it out. All right, Ilse. There. Don't worry. It's all right. But I had a chance to get started. There. There, you see, it's all out. Yes, I see. Ilse... Why did it bother you so much? Don't you remember? Don't you remember the fire? No. What fire? Oh. No. Don't talk of it. Look at me instead. Look at me, Arthur. Yes, Ilsa. Arthur, do you love me? Yes. Yes, Ilsa, I love you. I love you and I want you. I'm glad. That means you'll come back to us then. 
I don't know what you mean, Ilsa. You can know everything. Tonight, if you want to. Yes, I do, I do. You must know a part of it already. Down inside. You must remember some of it, don't you? Yes. It's like something buried for centuries inside of me, and now it's beginning to come alive. Let it come alive. Don't fight against it. You belonged to us once long ago, and you still belong. Yes. I seem to know that. That's why you came back. You heard them calling. You heard me calling. And you came seeking the old life again. Yes. But Ilsa... Ilsa, I'm afraid. Are you afraid of me? Look at me. Ilsa. Kiss me. (laughs) Ilsa. Will you live the old life again with me tonight? Yes, yes. I've known that you would because I own you, Arthur. You belong yes. to me and I want you and I shall yes. never let you escape from me again. Yes, yes. Go back to the inn then. Wait for me, Arthur. I shall come for you. Tonight. Back at the inn, I paced the floor of my room. A tense, uncontrollable excitement driving me along in a nervous frenzy. The dry crypt of memory broke open and all the things I'd hidden away for centuries poured into my consciousness. I knew now why I'd come here. I knew what I was going to do. And I knew that I was lost. I sensed the rising stir of movement throughout the inn and outside in the courtyard below my window. I knew what to expect when I threw open the shutter. From every window of the inn and from those of the houses about the court, were leaping great monstrous beasts with soft dark fur and eyes that gleamed with eerie phosphorescence. Cats, cats of human size. This then was the secret of molten, lycanthropy, the witchcraft of centuries long dead and buried. The half-human cries floated up to me and the moon cast their dark shadows on the ground as they padded across the courtyard and vanished through the narrow streets of the village heading for a hideous rendezvous. This is what I'd been. This is what I wanted to be now. I scarcely heard the door of my room open behind me. Are you ready, my love? Shall we join them? Ilsa. Here, Arthur. The sacred bomb. Made of a vein and mistletoe and blind things out of the sea. Remember? Yes. Yes, I remember. Take it. Use it. We'll change now, transform, leap from the window and join them. Lead us again, Arthur. Yes, but not here, Ilsa, not yet. Wait until we get there. Then we'll change. If you wish. Come then, Arthur, to the stone wall above the grove. That's where we'll change, on the stone rampart. In the grove on the sunken plain beneath the wall... Insane shadows writhed in the moonlight and postured in the luminous mist. A thousand of the devil's own were dancing in the unearthly music born from the harmony of the black sacrifice, crying out in delirious abandon, calling to the thing that now lived inside of me and struggled, screaming in my skull, trying to answer them back. I fought against them, fought against Ilsa, pleading and clinging with her soft arms about my neck. Now... 
Now, Arthur. Come with me now, if you love me. I love you, but I can't do it. I can't do it. Not again. Yes, my love. Only an instant of change, and then we'll live forever. Is it living without a soul Does else? Does it matter when I'm here? No. Once before I escaped, but I can never escape again. This time there'd be no turning back. Am I not worth it? Look at me. Look at me, my love. I clung to the very edge of my sanity, fought that I would not be lost and damned forever, and at this moment, at this moment, I knew, knew what I could do. Arthur, wait. What are you doing? I found a match in my pocket, struck it, dropped it into the dry leaves that lay banked across the whole length of the stone wall. No. No, Arthur, don't. Yes. I can't come to you through the fire. You're driving me away. Yes. Go, go, Elsa. Go into the valley. Goodbye, Elsa. Goodbye. You fall. You fall. I turned from the wall of flame that for a few minutes would shut me off from the valley, ran through the moonlight streets, not back toward the inn of the Golden Bar, but down the long road that led away from that cursed village of Malton. Well, Mr. Llewellyn, I find this one of the most interesting cases of hallucination I've encountered since I began the practice of psychiatry. I tell you, it really happened, Doctor. And having investigated your story a bit during the past week, I'm in a position now to answer most of the questions that have been worrying you since you came back to London. What do you mean, investigated? I went up to Hereford and looked over some of the old records there. Then I motored over to Malton for a couple of hours. Well, then you know it's all true. You saw it. You know I was there. Oh, there's no question but what you were there, Mr. Llewellyn. The lady who runs the inn showed me your name in the register. Said you left suddenly without taking your luggage or paying your bill. She was really quite put out. I... I see. Well... Well, what of the records, Doctor? The ones you spoke of? I think they really explain the whole thing, Mr. Llewellyn. It seems that during the 14th century, the village of Morton became a kind of headquarters in that part of the country for the practice of witchcraft. Yes. Yes, go on. Numerous trials were held there in the late 1300s, and a great many men and women were convicted of sorcery and burned to death. Yes? In the records of a trial in 1372, I found the name of an Arthur Llewellyn and of Ilsa and her mother. That proves it, then. It proves a clear case of hallucination. You knew that story before you went there. Not consciously, but somewhere deep in your latent memory. I knew nothing about it before. That man was an ancestor of yours. The story must be known in your family. When you arrived in Malton, accidentally, the association of the name just pulled the trigger. And your imagination did the rest. Yes, but doctor, my parents died when I was four. I, I've never been around any of my family ever. No matter. You see... A childhood memory is amazingly persistent at times. Yes. Yes, I suppose it is. I knew then what, what I had to do. The only thing I could do. There'd be no use in talking further with the doctor. He'd find some phrase of science to cover everything. He'd even try to 
explain away the mark I still carried across my shoulder where Ilse had thrown her arm about me in those last mad minutes on the rampart. A mark that was covered with soft gray fur like the fur of a cat. I knew now what had to be done and what must be done while I still retained my sanity. One last act, final and irrevocable. An act that begins by walking into the railway station at Charing Cross. Good evening, sir. May I help you? Hmm? Yes, yes. I, I'd like a ticket to Malton, please. Malton? I don't believe I... Uh... It's a little village on the Swansea line near the border of Wales. Oh, yes, yes. Here it is. I don't believe I've ever sold a ticket to Malton before. I don't doubt it. Let's see. Um, four and six, single fare, first class. Uh, did you wish a return trip, sir, or uh, one way? Uh, what? Uh, what did you say? Hmm? Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. Make it one way. <laughs> Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson. And tonight brought you Ancient Sorceries by Algernon Blackwood, adapted for radio by Les Crutchfield, with Paul Fries as Arthur Llewellyn, Kay Brinker as Ilsa, Anne Morrison as Madam, and William Conrad as the Doctor. Music is conceived and conducted by Cy Fuhrer. Next week... After you've had a hard day at the office or bending over a hot stove, next week at this time when your problems seem too much for you, we offer you Escape. Next week, we bring you another exciting story of high adventure. Good night, then, until the same time next week when once again we offer you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Okay, you can turn on the lights, you can... Um... <laughs> Turn on, turn on the lights and uh, stop thinking about those cat creatures that might be crawling up windows and different things. Uh, <laughs> that's a great one, Keith. Um, thanks for choosing that. Yeah. Uh, anything further you want to say about that particular show or the people in it? Real, well, just just that uh, once again, um, for anyone who came in late, that uh, lead role was played by a very young Paul Freeze. Um, I think he was only just under 30 years of age. Um, he sounds very young, doing that, that, that soft, uh, rather British voice that he often did on escapes of this era. He did it in one called The Grove of Ashtaroth, too, and again acted with William Conrad in that. And uh, again, that was another. That's one that you could possibly program for your regular horror evening. 
I don't know uh, that one, so uh, we'll have to we'll have to find that and uh, well, see that, it. Well, that that had the same soft voiced woman that we've just heard uh, as Ilsa, oh. uh, Kay Brinko, very okay. unusual actress, um, very strange voice quality, and hardly ever heard apart from uh, this very early period of Escape. She is in the Grove of Ashtaroth, and also another one that was one of the first ones Norman Macdonald ever directed called She, the great story by H. Ryder Haggard. Uh, they really used a lot of great, you know, literary properties in the early days of Escape. And uh, these sort of little horror stories like ancient sorceries make me want to go and uh, look up the original short story and read it. Yeah, I'm sure that uh, those are interesting too. I thought the opening... <laughs> was almost comical when he Conrad says, fed up with shoveling snow, wonder what the yes, world's they, up to. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, they, 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 that was a period I think they were looking for a standard opening and, and each week had a slightly different scenario of some boring task that you wanted to escape from. But it was it was odd hearing him just say <laughs> yeah, it in that, that, was, that, in was... that sneering voice. <laughs> <laughs> I started laughing when I heard that. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Because <laughs> normally it's tired of the everyday routine, want to get away from but, it all. Yeah, that came later. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. yeah, that was much better than <laughs> wonder what the world's yeah. up to and stop shoveling, <laughs> sh shoveling snow. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, we have a little lighthearted moment here in the midst of all these things about cat creatures and ancient sorceries. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for... Uh, bringing up that one. That's something I had heard years ago, remembered it being good, and it sure was. And I love hearing Paul Fries and William Conrad, so always good. Yeah, Conrad those. was the doctor at the end. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. They didn't uh, They didn't credit the actor Jeff Corey, who played the uh, sinister uh, waiter in, in the village uh, called Dundreary. <laughs> Dundreary, was, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was uh, very uh, effective in that, and he—that was Jeff Corey, who who was also a famous acting coach in Hollywood for decades. What other shows would we know Jeff Corey from? I know the name's familiar to me. I'm just not sure what else he did. Yeah, mainly, mainly a few around that era for people like Bill Robeson and Norman Macdonald. He did he did quite a few of the early adventures of Philip Marlowe with Gerald Moore, where he played. Uh, the semi-regular part of Detective Lieutenant Ibarra uh, from the, the squad. and uh, But he was in quite a few of the escapes in that 47-48 period in, in various roles. Yeah, I, I know the but names come up multiple times. He was much more he was much more a stage actor. Some of these ones that you, you hear from in that period were pretty much devoted to theatre, but they did radio for people like Robeson and uh, those sorts of directors because they treated actors uh, with respect. All right. Well, we've got four more uh, programs down the line in the next uh, four weeks, and you'll be back for each of those. I will. Reminder once more, Keith, you're the author of the book Cartoon Voices of the Golden Age, 1930 to 1970, and it's available from Bear Manor Books or the uh, omnipresent Amazon.com. And anybody that's following this series and has interest in vintage cartoons and vintage radio needs to have your book on their shelf. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. All right. Um, back next week with whatever. What do we have for next week? 
Uh, next week, we're, we're uh, back to much more cartoony uh, voices in Fibber, McGee and Molly, the ah. uh, favourite comedy series of many collectors. Uh, I remember Dick Mullins and uh, John Scheinfeld both saying that Fibber and Molly was their favourite comedy show, for instance. I, I'm sure that the one you've selected for next week is a good one, and I know they're good ones because I've heard good ones, and I like those. So uh, we will look forward to that, and we'll get away from the uh, the grisly, weird cat ladies and things like that and save those for Thursday's uh, episodes. Yeah, that was a one-off. Back next week with another great show uh, with Keith Scott, our special guest, author of Cartoon Voices of the Golden Age, available from Bear Manor Books and the lovely Amazon.com, he says with clenched teeth. Uh, this is John Tefteller in the good old days of radio show. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.